We'll hear argument now, number 94771, pardon me, the Oklahoma Tax Commission versus Chickasaw Nation. Mr. Rothfeld. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case concerns two Oklahoma taxes, an excise tax on motor fuel and the state income tax that the Court of Appeals held could not be applied to an Indian tribe or to certain of its members. Now, I'll talk about those taxes in turn, starting with the one on motor fuel. In holding the tax invalid, the Court of Appeals applied what it thought to be a per se rule that precludes the imposition of any state tax whose legal incidence falls upon an Indian tribe unless that tax has been expressly authorized by Congress. Now, because the Court found as a matter of state law that the legal incidence of the tax falls upon the retailer of the fuel, and because the retailers in this case are tribally owned convenience stores located on federal trust land in Indian country, the Court of Appeals applied its per se rule to strike down the tax. We think that there are three things wrong with this decision. First, Congress has expressly authorized this tax. Second, the Court of Appeals, even apart from the congressional action, should not have applied a per se rule in the circumstances of this case. And third, the Court of Appeals should not have found the legal incidence of the tax to fall upon the retailer of the motor fuel. First, Congress has, by statute, expressly authorized the very tax that the state has imposed in this case. The Hayden Cartwright Act provides, in so many words, that states may impose taxes on motor fuel sold on United States military or other reservations. Was this argument raised before the Court of Appeals, Mr. Rothfeld? Uh, It it was not, Your Honor, but I think that that should not preclude its consideration here. This is not a a new claim or a new issue that's being injected into the case at this point. This is simply additional authority for what has been the Tax Commission's consistent claim. That claim is that the tax here is not preempted. I think to consider that sort of preemption claim, the Court typically in Indian preemption cases looks upon the entire body of federal legislation, and certainly the Hayden-Cartwright Act is legislation that deals specifically with the question of whether Congress intended a tax of this kind to be preempted. Mr. Rothfeld, most of these gas stations, I understand it, are in Indian territory but not on a reservation. I mean, the most this statute would show is that the reservation is, is excluded. Well, I think, Your Honor, there was no doubt about the meaning of the word reservation at the time the Act was written. This means court, Indian territory? Well, I think that this Court had said some years before in United States versus Celestine that the term reservation is used in the land law to refer to any body of land, large or small, that has been reserved from sale by Congress for any purpose. And that, in the land law, but this is not land law. When you say United States military or other reservation, I hardly think that that refers to Indian territory apart from Indian reservations. Well, the, the, At least it's, a, it's highly questionable whether it does. That's even assuming that it, that it covers Indian reservations at all. Well, I, I think that it clearly does cover Indian reservations, Your Honor. Um, <laughs> as I say, the, the Court had defined the term reservation to include specifically Indian reservations. As to whether these particular lands are covered by that, these are federal trust lands, clearly lands that have been reserved from sale by Congress. Um, and as the Court said in Celestine, the general use of the term is to refer to lands that have been reserved for any purpose. Well, Mr. Rothfeld, now, this, this Hayden-Cartwright Act point was not raised below or dealt with. That, that is true, Justice O'Connor. It would require us to interpret the meaning of reservation with, in that act, I guess, for the first time. That's true. The Court has not yet expressed an opinion on And there was nothing expressed in the petition for certiorari here that referred us to the Hayden-Cartwright Act. Again, that, that is true, Your Honor, but I think that the question presented in the, in the petition is whether or not this Oklahoma law is preempted. And clearly to, to answer that question requires a consideration of the body of congressional legislation. I, I, I guess there is some parallel here in the, uh, 
independent insurance agents case that the Court relied upon earlier this term in LeBron, in which the issue was whether a statute had been repealed. And that point was not argued even in the briefs on the merits or at oral argument. And nevertheless, the Court found that it was appropriate to look to whether your, your first question presented, which I take it the Hayden Cartwright Act would have to come under or uh, uh, it, it's not all. It says whether principles of federal preemption or Indian sovereignty preclude a state from imposing a tax on sales of motor fuel. Now, it doesn't seem to me that really necessarily includes the idea that there's an applicable statute. Well, I think, Your Honor, that's a, a highfalutin way of asking whether or not the statute, the state statute, is preempted. And, again, it's difficult to resolve a question of preemption, and particularly a question of Indian preemption, in which the Court has looked to the entire body of federal legislation to see if there is a, an, an extant federal policy that bears on the question without considering whether there is a federal statute in the area. And this federal statute clearly expresses the intent of Congress as to the particular point that's at issue here. So Mr. I, Rothfeld, even if you're right that the Court could entertain this statutory argument, isn't it extraordinary for this Court to be a Court of first view? Very often the Court won't even address a question clearly raised by a petition. It will wait for a circuit split. But you're asking this Court to jump in and interpret the statute before anyone else has. That's quite unusual. Well, I think, Justice Ginsburg, again, we are presenting the question of whether or not this state law is preempted. And to answer that question, we think that it would be appropriate for the Court to look to the entire body of federal legislation to determine whether or not Congress has expressed a policy that bears on the particular tax. It might also be appropriate for the Court to say we leave that question to one side because it was not aired before the Court of Appeals? Well, I, I, certainly that is within the Court's discretion, Your Honor. I, I can't disagree with that. But I think that in this setting, in which the question is whether federal law displaces the state tax, looking to the body of federal legislation is an appropriate way of resolving that point. And I, I think that it is quite clear that if the Court were to look at the Hayden Cartwright Act, it would see that there is a federal policy that deals specifically with the question in this case and specifically provides that gasoline taxes and other motor fuel taxes may be collected by states on reservations. And again, as I suggested to Justice Scalia, there was no doubt about the meaning of the word reservation at the time the Act was, was written. Your, your references to doubt, uh, I, I guess, are to the, the departmental view at the time. Have, we've never construed it to cover an Indian reservation. Have lower courts so construed it? Uh, so far as I'm aware, Your Honor, there is one lower court decision on this point which has construed it. Uh, it's a decision of the South Dakota Supreme Court which appears in 273 uh, Northwest Reporter involving its in-ray um, motor fuel liability of Is, Have you cited it? Uh, it? It was not cited, Your Honor. Um, I think the respondents say that we should dismiss this as improvidently granted. Uh, do you know the status of the legislation, and is what you just were talking about an added reason for doing that? Well, I, I think that the legislation that the tribe refers to in its brief is essentially dead for this term of the Oklahoma legislature. So there, there is no prospect that the, the case will be mooted. And I think this, this is clearly, even if the Court were to conclude that this is not a ground that it can re base its decision upon, this is not a ground for re dismissing the case as improvidently granted. The Hayden-Cartwright Act was specifically noted in the opinion of the Court of Appeals, which said that it was not going to reach it. So the Court was, was certainly aware of the existence of the Act. Uh, at the time that the petition was, was presented. And I should, I suppose, move on to the question, perhaps the more fundamental question, entirely apart from the Act, of whether the Court of Appeals was correct in saying that there is a per se rule that precludes state taxation of the kind in this case. Uh, 
we think that that clearly was, was wrong. And explaining why that's so, it's useful to start with three points that are not disputed between the parties in this case. I think, first, that both the United States and the tribe recognize that the balance of state and tribal interest, which ordinarily is of crucial importance in resolving the question of whether a state may assert its jurisdiction on the reservation, they acknowledge that that balance decisively favors the state in this case. They also acknowledge that their rule rests upon a economically meaningless legal formalism, the formalism of legal incidents, that has no connection to the economic realities in this case. And well, but it's, it's one which I gather your client has embodied in statute. Well, I think that there, there is — Isn't that so? I mean, under Oklahoma law, the, the, the taxpayer here is, is deemed to be, in, in this case, the, the, the retailer and hence the tribe. Well, that, that was the Court of Appeals' conclusion, Your Honor. We, we disagree with that as a matter of state law. But we think that the question of where the legal incidence falls has no economic bearing, no bearing as a matter of economic reality. I think that the tribe acknowledges well, — don't we draw — I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but didn't Oklahoma win the last case by a little line drawing of exactly that sort? Maybe I should ask whether you would like to win this one or for us to go back and, and, and adopt the dissent in, in the Oklahoma tax submission case of a couple of weeks ago. Well, I think you, it would be — You did very well with, with I, formal I think it would be the Commission's argument. preference to win both cases, Your Honor. Pardon me? I, I think I can confidently state that it's the Commission's preference to win both, both of those cases. I, I guess and that I, might be its position. And, and I think that they are entirely consistent. As I understand the Court's opinion in Jefferson Lines, it focused on an actual difference between a sales tax and a gross receipts tax. I mean, the Court pointed out that a sales tax can be collected only in one state, and there, therefore, is no possibility of duplicative taxation. But it did not focus on, on, on economic effects. I mean, that was one reason why the — the dissent and the majority parted ways. No, that, that, that is, is certainly true. But there was a real difference, a real-world difference between the two types of taxes that were at issue in that case. There is no real-world difference between the tax that Oklahoma is applying here, as interpreted by the Court of Appeals, and the tax is, is there any — I mean, if you're talking economic realities, is there any such thing as a, as a tax upon a, upon a retailer? Or a tax upon a business, any tax upon a business, is, is going to be passed downward uh, to, the, to the maximum extent possible. Well, I, I think that that's quite right, and that so is a is — a, is Don't a, we have to determine it on, on formalistic basis? Uh, it's it's going to end up uh, — the purchaser is going to pay for it one way or another. You're telling me there's no such thing as, as a tax on a retailer, then? No, I, I'm suggesting, Your Honor, that, that what the Court should do is determine these cases without reference to the formality at all, to the, to the legal formalism, and simply look at the effect of the state law I'm on the I'm saying trial. if you do that, there's no such thing as a tax on a retailer, because a retailer will always pass the tax, tax downward to the maximum extent possible, unless, as a matter of form, he is required to collect penny for penny from the consumer, there's, there's no such thing. He's going to pass it downward all the time. No, and that, that is absolutely right. And we therefore think that in determining whether or not a tax of this kind is valid, the Court should look to whether or not it has an impermissible effect on the tribe. But that's not what our previous cases have done, is it? I mean, they have stuck to what you regard as, as a formalistic evaluation. Well, I think that it's clear from the body of the Court's cases that it has not regarded legal incidents as the be-all and end-all of the inquiry that is necessarily decisive. In the Sack and Fox and Colville cases, for example, the states imposed taxes, automobile excise taxes and registration fees, on members of the reservation living on the reservation, members of the tribe living on the reservation, who garaged their cars on the reservation. And the Court said that those taxes might well be valid if they were apportioned to deal with use of the car outside of Indian country. The Court didn't say that the legal incidence of the tax falling upon the member of the tribe was dispositive in those cases. I mean, in the Mo case, the Court also said that its decision striking down state taxes did not deal with, question, with, with the issue in which 
the receipts that are subject to tax are attributable to on-reservation sales to non-members. And the Court, I think, generally, as in the Sack and Fox case, has referred to the rule against State imposition of taxes on Indians as a presumption. Such a presumption presumably may be overcome. So I don't think it's the case that legal incidence is necessarily decisive. What the Court has done is, on a number of occasions, strike down State taxes that fell on what the Court has described as value generated on the reservation by the tribe. Those are taxes like the tax on the income of a tribal member reservation resident at issue in McClanahan, cases like the tax on the sale by the tribe on the reservation to members of the tribe of goods that were used on the reservation that were an issue in Moe and Colville. If, if we reject your argument, I take it that Oklahoma could easily revise its taxing scheme in order to collect these taxes, just make it a, con, a consumer-based tax? That, that's true. We think that it is clear that Oklahoma, under Moe and Colville and Chamawavy and the other cases of the Court acknowledging the State's power to impose such a tax, the, the, the State could modify the tax legislation here. The Court, the, the tribe acknowledges in its brief that all the State need do is insert somewhere in the text of the tax statute the legislative intent that the burden of the tax be borne by the consumer, that that's sufficient to validate the tax. And so I the cost of it, adhering to our precedents is really rather slight. Uh, the State can simply conform to the rules we've set forth and to the rules that all of the other States have been following in evaluating the, the lawfulness of their taxing scheme. Well, let me respond in two parts to that, Justice Kennedy. I think, first of all, the Court would not be adhering to its precedent. There certainly is no — I mean, in the sense that the Court does not depart from any of — have to depart from any of its decisions to rule for the State here. There, there is no case in which the Court has struck down a tax that otherwise would be valid, as this one clearly would be, simply because the legal incidence was said to fall upon the wrong person. But there are substantial costs that are associated with a tax — with a rule that judges the validity of a tax based upon this kind of formalism. It serves principally this rule as what the Court described in Complete Auto as a trap for the unwary legislative draftsman, who is not likely to be focusing on this problem, certainly can't anticipate that years down the road a tribe is going to become a retailer or a wholesaler of fuel. Well, 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 surely the legislators of the state of Oklahoma and other states with substantial Indian reservations are well aware of our, of our taxing jurisprudence, and it would be quite uh, astounding for us to presume to the contrary. Well, I, I think that this case actually is an illustration of the problem. That the Oklahoma legislature, I think, had been laboring under the assumption that the legal incidence of this tax fell upon the consumer. The state has consistently taken the position throughout this, this litigation that it does not fall upon the retailer. Uh, and one problem with this kind of formalistic rule is that it will prompt people to search for statutory ambiguities to devise tax exemptions for themselves. Uh, but that you're, the, 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 you, so you say perhaps the Tenth Circuit was wrong here in deciding the question of Oklahoma law as to where the incidence of the tax was. Is this the legislation that's dead for this session in the Oklahoma legislature to change the incidence of the tax? The, the legislation that is dead would have declared the, declared the intent of the Oklahoma legislature that the tax fall upon the consumer. You, you claim this is a question of federal law? Where is the, 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 where the, where the Oklahoma legal incidence of of the taxes is a question of federal law? Or is it a question no, no, we, we, we don't suggest that it's a question of federal law. Certainly question. in the first instance it's a matter of state law, although if the rule is, and we say it should not be, but if the rule is that the legal incidence determines the availability of an immunity from state taxation as a matter of federal law, if there is a federal rule of preemption that turns upon the existence of legal incidence, then clearly the federal courts are, must be able to determine where that incidence falls. What? Why? Uh, otherwise, be I mean, they, they, have to, to they have to be able to determine what the Oklahoma law is. Well, that, that's right. We don't, we don't suggest that it is a matter of, of federal law where the legal incidence lies as a matter of, uh, as to the intent of the Oklahoma legislature. And the Court has said that the intent of the legislature is determinative in determining where the legal incidence of a tax falls. Why should we uh, not just accept the uh, 
the finding of the Court of Appeals on that question of state law as we usually do? Well, we think the Court of Appeals is clearly wrong, and the Court has in other cases, as in Chamafuevi, a very similar situation, has said that the Court of Appeals got it wrong and has determined the legal incidents for itself. I mean, I think that that, the Chief Justice referred to the cases of the Court accepting legal incidents as dispositive. I think that what the cases of the Court have have done have found the legal incidents as an easy way of disposing (coughs) of the case, and as in Chamafuevi, where the Court of Appeals got it wrong, the Court of Appeals has stepped in. And we think that it is clear here that the Court of Appeals did get it wrong. Um, As we read the tax statute, there are two provisions that bear specifically on the question of whether the consumer or the retailer bears the legal incidence of the tax. We think both of those indicate that it clearly is the consumer who bears the legal incidence. And I think that if the Court chooses to move in that direction and not reach the more fundamental question of whether or not there is such a per se rule, it can easily dispose of the case by finding that the legal incidence does fall upon the consumer. There's two provisions I, I should know quickly. One of them is a definitional provision of the statute, which refers to collection of taxes by both retailers and distributors, making clear that both of them were intended by the legislature to collect the tax from someone further down the distribution chain. That, that is confirmed by another provision of the statute, an exemption provision, which provides that purchasers, that's the ultimate consumers, who buy gasoline for agricultural uses uh, are relieved of the obligation of paying the tax, again indicating that it is ordinarily the purchaser who is intended to, to pay the tax. Um, so I think that that is a, an easy ground on which the Court can dispose of this case. But I, I should return to the question of whether or not. Are, are you saying that, that if this pending law, that, well, this law is now dead, had passed, there'd be no difference at all in, in substance? That, that, that is absolutely right, Justice Ginsburg. And I think that is the most powerful argument for why such a formalistic rule makes no sense. The Court has said that legal incidence falls upon the consumer where the legislature intends for the tax to be passed on to the consumer. That is so even though the tax doesn't expre- — even though the, the state law doesn't expressly require the pass-through. That was the holding in Chem of Waiver. And that is true even when there is no sanction imposed upon the retailer who fails to pass the tax on. That was the Court's holding in the Mississippi Tax Commission case and First Agricultural Bank cases. So all that the legislature need do to change the legal incidence of this tax is declare somewhere in the text of the statute its intent that the burden of the tax be borne by the ultimate consumer. And as Justice Scalia noted before, that makes no difference in reality. It does not affect the tax collection procedures at all. It does not collect the obligation upon the retailer in this case. To have the validity of a state tax law turn upon that sort of formalism, I think, makes no sense. The Court has rejected that approach in complete auto and various other settings. And there is no reason why that kind of dinosaur of a rule, having become extinct everywhere else, should continue lumbering along here. I'm I'm not sure what I understand you want us to look to. Uh, You you don't want us to look to whom the legislature intended to saddle with the tax. What what do you want us to look to? I think, Justice Scalia, that actually ends up paying the, the tax? I think the Court should look to the same considerations that it looks to outside of the tax context, where it looks to what the Court has called the particularized inquiry into the state, the tribal, and the federal interests. If the tax is one that imposes an impermissible burden on the tribe by somehow threatening to infringe upon tribal sovereignty or the mechanisms of tribal government, as in the cases in which the Court has invalidated state taxes, the tax should be invalid. So, for, for example, I thought you were arguing to us that, that, that it was unrealistic to view the incidence of the tax as being on one party or the other. And now you're saying it doesn't matter who the incidence of the tax is on. You should just be, just look at the scheme and see if it's hurting the tribes too much. Well, I, I think it doesn't matter who the legal incidence of the tax is on. I think it matters what the effect of the tax is upon the tribe, upon the mechanisms of tribal government. Fine. If it's the effect, isn't it going to be adverse to the tribe no matter who you put it on? But the Court has already held in Moe and Colville and All right. So, so, I mean, if you really want us to look at the economic effect, 
I take it if there are only a few gas stations owned by the tribe and prices are competitive and there are a lot of gas stations elsewhere in the state, that whether you say the consumer is paying it or whether you say the distributor is paying it or whether you say somebody else is paying it, in the absence of the tax, the tribe could charge more money, which they'd keep. And in the presence of the tax, they'll have to give that extra money to the government. That, that, that is true, Justice Breyer, but the Court has confronted that balance repeatedly in cases in which the legal incidence fell upon the ultimate purchaser and has found that the tribal interests in those circumstances do not outweigh the State's interest in the court. But my point is that if you look at the formality of it, the formality isn't on the tribe, is it, or is? Well, the Court of Appeals held that it is. We think yep, that, right. that it was The formality right. is you, do, you don't win on that one, and if you look at the reality, you don't win on that one either. No, on the contrary, I think that we clearly do win on the reality because the court, the court has judged taxes in which the legal incidence falls upon the ultimate purchaser, the, ta- the taxes in Moe and in Shame of Wavy and in Colville and in, most recently in Milhelmatea. The court has viewed those in terms of the economic reality. The court has Isn't said Isn't the economic reality, that's my question. It hurts. The price is a dollar a gallon and it's set by competition all over the state and 20 cents of that dollar is going to the state government. I guess the tribe also can charge a dollar a gallon, because that's the competitive price. And if they don't have to pay 20 cents out of that dollar to the state, they can keep it. And so, and the, those are the economic circumstances. No matter who you say this tax is being borne by, the reality is it would be borne by the tribe. If I may, Your Honor, I think the rule the Court has stated is that a state law is not invalid simply because it has an adverse economic impact on the tribe. The Court has said that there must be a particularized inquiry into the state tribal interests. And the Court has conducted that inquiry, and, and although what you say is true as a matter of economic reality, the Court said quite clearly in Colville that there is no right on the part of the tribe to collect, to, to make sales that it would not otherwise have made simply because it is marketing a tax. We haven't said that. You've said it. We, we, no, no, no. We, we asked you how you, how you determine who bears the incidence of the tax? Uh, you reject formalism. You reject who the, who the state says must pay it. You ask us to simply decide who gets hurt by it. You're the one that's proposing this, not our prior decisions. If you look at who, who, who ends up out of whose pocket it ultimately comes, it ultimately comes out of the tribe's pocket. But, but I, I think um, the test is not, as the Court has said it, the, court, the test is not who is hurt by the tax or whose pocket the tax comes out of. The test is whether the state law infringes upon the mechanisms of tribal government, undermines the mechanisms of tribal government in a fundamental That's way. That's quite a different test than saying we ought to look at the economic impact, which I thought you were saying a moment ago. I, I, maybe I, I have misspoken. I don't suggest that the tax falls upon whoever bears the economic impact. I'm saying that in judging the constitutionality or the validity of a state tax law, as it bears on Indian tribes, the Court must look to the effect of that tax on on the tribal interests that the Court well, has said are significant. In Chemawavy, uh which was maybe 10 years ago, I just glanced at it again, there we, we, we reversed the Ninth Circuit because we thought it had been wrong in deciding where the legal incidence of the tax was. So at least we thought at that time, 10 years ago, that that was the test. Well, I, again, I think that the Court has found it sort of an easy and non-controversial way to dispose of these cases on the ground that the legal instance doesn't Well, I belong. think you may do us less than justice. <laughs> uh. Well, I, I don't presume to tell the Court what it was thinking when it resolved these cases, Your Honor. But as I said, it, it is, I think, clear from the tenor of the Court's opinion, as in Saxon, Sack and Fox and Colville, where it did not dispose of challenges on the ground that these taxes have a legal incidence that falls upon members of the tribe. That's the end of the matter. The Court said, in fact, those taxes might well be permissible if they were properly apportioned, even though the legal incidence fell upon the member of the tribe on the reservation. 
And I think that what the Court has looked to throughout this body of cases is whether or not the total the tax as applied has an impermissible effect upon the mechanisms of tribal government. In the cases in which the legal incidence was found to fall upon someone other than the tribe, the Court has looked to whether or not tribal operations would be displaced, whether or not it was real tribal interest that was at stake. And that is clearly not the case here, where all the tribe is doing is importing onto the reservation goods manufactured elsewhere that are going to be marketed for resale, largely to non-Indians, for use outside of Indian country. And I'll reserve the balance of my time if the Court has no questions. Very well, Mr. Rothfeld. Uh, Mr. Arrow. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, as uh, counsel for the Tax Commission has made clear, this case involves two questions. Uh, with the Court's permission, we would first turn to the fuel tax question, uh, reserving the treaty question with relation to the income tax until later in this argument. With respect to the fuel tax, we would like to make four points before this Court. Uh, first, the Court of Appeals' decision below is entitled to deference with regard to its interpretation of state law. Uh, counsel for the petitioner has characterized this as a state law question. Uh, we on the respondent side representing the Chickasaw Nation understand that this is primarily a state law question. We agree with that proposition. Obviously, as, as uh, the Chief Justice has just pointed out, uh, there is a federal component to the extent that this Court in Shemawavy established uh, foursquare the proposition that uh, the absence of an express pass-through provision uh, in, a, in a state tax does not mean ipso facto and a fortiori that the resultant tax is not a consumer tax. That is the federal component of the rule. Beyond that, this Court has treated those questions as state law questions, uh, and in cases uh, too numerous to cite, but one which we have mentioned in our brief is Herring versus Procease. Uh, this Court has indicated that it is this Court's practice to accept conclusions of courts of appeals with respect to questions of state law, even if independent examination might have justified a different conclusion. That's the first point that we would like to make with respect to the fuel tax. Uh, this takes us to the second point, which is that independent examination of the Court of Appeals decision by this Court in this case on the state law question with reference to the incidence of the fuel tax would not justify a different conclusion with respect to the Court of Appeals conclusion uh, that the incidence of the fuel tax is, in fact, on retailers, in this case, the Chickasaw Nation, the retail Indian tribe. Is there any difference that the consumer can see between what would have been if this law had passed and what is? Now the formal uh, incidence of the tax is on the retailer. If it had been placed on the consumer, would there be any difference in what the consumer would see at the pump? Uh, uh, Justice, Justice Ginsburg, I would, I would say in answer to that, uh, that while it might be theoretically possible that, that, that a retailer might choose to absorb, in quotation marks, part of the tax, and therefore there might be some theoretical difference, our inclination is, 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 is the same as, as, as the, uh, the implications of Justice Scalia's question, which is that, you know, can you, can you really see any difference between the tax and the inc- uh, regardless of where the incidence would be? And the answer might well be no. Uh, with respect, respect to Justice uh, Scalia's question of counsel, uh, we would simply invoke al- along this very same line what we have quoted in our brief in opposition at page 17, uh, wherein we quote uh, a, an argument which had been made by the Tax Commission in the, in the Court of Appeals below. This is at page 17 of the brief in opposition in, uh, at, at uh, uh, line 3 of page 17. Petitioner's own early, earlier argumentation expressly noted that the search for taxes included in the wholesale price could look back forever. Uh, and for the same reasons, it could look forward forever. Uh, for the same reason, uh, for the same reason as well. Uh, and so, uh, our answer would be to incline to uh, to answer Justice Ginsburg's question in the negative. What do you uh, the, do about the two uh, 
uh, the, the two provisions of law mentioned by uh, by your opponent? Yes, Your Honor. This the definition section <coughs> and the exemption section. That's right. Uh, the, the Petitioner Tax Commission has made a great deal of the fact that Section 501C is in the so-called definitional section of the statute. When one examines that beyond the superficial characterization of the word definitional, one does find that, in fact, Section 501 of the statute, which begins the fuel tax scheme, uh, has the word definitions in the heading. When one looks at 501C, one finds that what 501C is definitional of is storage. Uh, and so to the extent that one finds it in a definitional provision of the statute, uh, counsel for, for, for Petitioner Tax Commission and the Tax Commission itself has attempted to, to indicate that there is some talismanic aspect of the fact uh, that we find Section 501C in a definition, definitional provision, but the definition is, is one of storage. We have a specific answer to that also. Uh, it simply states, uh, and I'm quoting from Section 501C, the critical proposition advanced by, by the Tax Commission, nothing in this section shall replace in the briefs where we can find that that you're quoting? Yes, uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, specifically, I would refer, refer the Court to section, uh, to the blue brief, to the, to the brief of, uh, of Petitioner uh, at page 36, I believe it is. Thank you. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, where they are quoting... There's no page 36 of the brief of petitioner. Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, section 501, a definitional provision of the statute on about line 12 of the page. Uh, Your Honor, I failed to find it in the brief of petitioner at this point. Uh, it, it, is, it is cited in our brief, but I don't have the page in front of me. I apologize, Your Honor. Nothing on 36. You're not talking about 501B? Uh, 501B, yes, Your Honor. It provides that. It's about a third of the way down the page. Purchasers of non-taxable diesel fuel must comply with the provisions of Section 509 in order to avoid the taxes levied by Sections 501. Is that, is that it? Uh, that is on page 36. Uh, yes, that, uh, I believe that may, be a, that may be a misquotation. I believe they're referring to 501A at that point. Uh, or 501B, pardon me. I'm talking about 501C, Your Honor. I'm, I'm, I'm given the petition uh, by co-counsel uh, at page 39A of the petition. And at page 39A, about two-thirds of the way down to the bottom of the page, uh, nothing in this section shall require a, a, a distributor, dealer, or retailer to collect. And the Tax Commission relies heavily on the fact uh, that it indicates that somehow retailers collect. We point out in our, in our, uh, in our brief in chief uh, that this simply requires a negative inference, that, that petitioner is attempting to draw a negative inference from this, that something else requires payment of the tax by a consumer, uh, which is absolutely not the case. Uh, we point out further that, there are, that the provisions which are really definitional uh, as to the incidence of the fuel tax uh, are, are largely Section 505 of the statute, specifically Section 505C, and also Section 506 of the statute, uh, which provide, and, and these are cited in our, in our, in our brief in chief, uh, which provide that the distributor is an agent of the state for collection of the fuel tax. 
And we find, as we have indicated in the rest of our uh, remaining brief, uh, that as to those provisions, Section 505C and Section 506, uh, as well as Section 507, as well as Section 502, there are numerous provisions which are ignored by the Tax Commission, uh, which establish the definition of where the legal incidence of the fuel tax is, rather than simply carving out a, a phrase and basing their argument on a negative inf- in, uh, implication of a provision of the statute which is contained in the definition of storage. We submit that the statute taken as a whole, in short, uh, e- uh, e- even though uh, there is that possible implication, but it, but it requires a negative and an incorrect implication, that nothing that that nothing because nothing requires a distributor, retailer, or dealer to collect. That something else requires that collection be from consumers, and there simply is no pass-through provision to consumers anywhere in this scheme, expressed or implied. With respect to the agricultural exemption, which is cited, and this is the second provision that is relied upon primarily by the uh, by the by the petitioner tax commission, they are referring to the agricultural exemption in section 509 of the statute, which simply states that anyone uh, who is claiming an agricultural exemption for for, for gasoline to be used for farm use shall not be required to pay, quote-unquote, to pay. Uh, and we have indicated to this Court, uh, having, having recognized the significance of plain meaning in text before this Court, but we have indicated that that word, which, by the way, was inserted in 1939, uh, <clears throat> and, and, and we have researched the legislative history, there's nothing which indicates any intent to change the legal incidence of fuel tax scheme in 1939, but, but we have d- described that as colloquial. We also point out to this Court uh, that in Section 508B of the statute, the identical provision with respect to the, uh, to the aircraft tax indicates that the, that the exemption is one which can, pl- can, can be claimed by the distributor, uh, and other provisions of the statute are silent on this whatsoever. But the critical proposition that, <clears throat> that we indicate and the critical provisions that we have cited to this Court which affirmatively establish the legal incidence of the fuel tax are Section 505E with respect to diesel fuel tax. Section 505E expressly imposes payment obligations on retailers or dealers. And the only, the only response that we've seen in the reply brief uh, from the Petitioner Tax Commission is, well, that only applies to diesel fuel. That's one. And secondly, the Hayden Cartwright Act. Those are the only answers that they have to that, because it is expressed in that provision, Section 505E of the fuel tax statute, uh, that that, uh, under those circumstances, uh, the diesel fuel tax is clearly to be uh, payment obligations are imposed on retailers or dealers. Cheryl, can I ask you probably a stupid question, but does the the place where the legal incidence of the tax falls determine whether the consumer or the dealer can deduct the payment for federal income tax purposes? Does it have any independent significance is what I'm really asking. I am not aware of any for that purpose, Your Honor. It's, what difference, does it make any difference other than for this deciding whether the, the Indian, the tribes have to pay the tax? Uh, Your Honor, clearly in, in another non-Indian context, this Court, as, 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 uh, as, as has been pointed out by Justice Souter, you know, as recently as the Jefferson Lines case, going back to complete auto transit, has disregarded the formalities involved in a tax. Uh, but in this case, we submit to this Court that one either has a per se rule in this complex area or, or one does not. And in order for there to be a per se rule, uh, one must acknowledge the fact that the legal incidence must be controlling for purposes of the per se rule if the per se rule is to avoid cumbersome and dupli- uh, duplicative litigation. Well, does, uh, doesn't the incidence of the tax say, uh, have significance outside of the Indian law context? I mean, if, if there's a failure to pay a conceitedly owed tax, uh, the state tax commission, it may depend on how the laws are, whether they can come after the wholesaler or the retailer or the purchaser. Yes, it? yes, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, that's absolutely right. We point out in part, uh, specifically along those lines, that they're unlike the Oklahoma cigarette tax. 
unlike the California cigarette tax at issue in Chemawavy, both of those cases contained independent obligations on the parts of consumers to pay for untaxed cigarettes and forbade the use of untaxed cigarettes. Yes, but in either event, even if the even if the retailer isn't the taxpayer in the technical sense, it still can have a statutory obligation to collect the tax. That, in 1931, Your Honor, the, the, the legal incidents had been — could only be characterized as dual. In 1931, the Oklahoma legislative scheme was amended to include a situation whereby the wholesaler paid the tax but could, at its option, pass the tax along to retailers. Uh, and so both in those situations, the, the statutory scheme at that point in time imposed obligations on both. In 1933, during the Dust Bowl, and the, by the best of our research, based upon, uh, based upon what we found with references to defaulting dealers in the statute, uh, in 1933, the incidence clearly is moved onto wholesale, uh, onto retailers, pardon me, with wholesale distributors, what has now become Section 506 originated in 1933, with wholesale distributors limited specifically to agents of the state for collection. Uh, and at that point, they still, and they do still today, have an independent obligation to pay over to the state, to remit, is the technical term of art which the, which the Oklahoma Fuel Tax Code uses, to remit monies to the state which have been collected from retailers. Uh, and there is a penalty in Section 506 for embezzlement, uh, not for tax evasion on the part of wholesalers, but rather for embezzlement uh, in those circumstances where, where, where wholesale distributors do not pay over to the state that money which we have collected. But there are independent payment obligations on retailers also, such as Section 505E. So the answer to your question is yes, it is possible that they both have obligations, one, to remit monies that it has collected, as, as the statute says, as the agent of the state and monies which it holds in trust, the other, the primary obligation to, to, to pay, but in no sense is there any obligation on consumers. And, and, and that's the important point uh, that I wanted to make in response to, to the Chief Justice's question. Well, I have to confess that the thing that keeps running through my mind is, as I remember the Mo case, the court said that the, the tribe cannot market its tax exemption by selling to non-members. That's right, Your Honor. And, but the answer to that is they can do it if the ta they can market the tax exemption if the incidence of the tax falls on the retailer. Precisely, Your Honor. Precisely. Now, of course, we are not marketing a tax exemption in 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 in, in a loose sense of the term. Uh, the Chickasaw Nation and well, all the in other tribes in the state. Sense, you certainly are. Well, as you're able to sell it cheaper than than the, the retailers who must pay the tax. Well, in point of fact, that doesn't occur, Your Honor, because the the the, 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 the tribe has imposed its own fuel uh, fuel tax, which is precisely the same uh, as the fuel tax imposed by the state. So, therefore, as a matter of economic reality, in in this particular set of facts, there is no economic advantage whatsoever. Right, Every tribe in the state has they, done they this. owe it to themselves. Sure. You mean well? You mean if I take money out of one pocket and put it in my other pocket? That's that, that, that that is correct. That is correct, uh, uh, Justice Scalia. But but the distinction being, there is no marketing and exemption from the standpoint of a consumer purchaser having having You're any artificial they're, inducement. They're not using it to sell more gas. That's right, Your Honor. They're just using it to make more money. That's right, Your Honor. That's correct. Uh, and, and our position uh, in response to Justice Stevens' question is, if the incidence of the fuel tax is on the retailer, they can do that. The premise of, of the Moe and Colville cases were that the, was that the incidence of the fuel taxes there was on, uh, was on the consumers, and this Court had expressly so found and, and had been supported by lower court interpretations of state law in both of those cases. And, and as questions have indicated... You know anybody in the state other than, other than Indians who who uh, market more gas by charging less tax? Who market more gas by you know, charging I'm, less I'm, maybe tax? Maybe I'm from the East here, and, and I'm, not, I'm always used to seeing, you know, the, the gas price, and then it says, you know, plus three, plus two, whatever the tax is. Don't, plus four, whatever, whatever it's gotten up to now. <laughs> it's not like that in Oklahoma. It just says, you know, flat price, and 
You, you can bargain? Uh, you can no, no, I, I, down. I, I have not successfully negotiated yet, Your Honor. Uh, no, I, you know, if, yeah. if the incidents were not on the purchaser, I, I, I would expect that some people would charge the tax and some people wouldn't. Um, if the incident, there's no, it, there's no if the incidents were not on the retailer, Your Honor? If, if no, if the incidents were not, not on, on the, the purchaser, I expect that uh, some people simply wouldn't charge any tax. Well, uh, the gas uh, stations uh, don't show a tax charge. Yeah, uh, uh, again, Justice Scalia, with respect to your question of, 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 a, of a while ago, it, with respect to your question as to whether or not there's really any such thing from a standpoint of economic reality, you know, the, the question I suppose might rhetorically be, is there any difference between not charging a portion of the tax and simply cutting profits one or two cents, uh, you know, and... and, and yeah, that's, that's right, Your Honor, and that, that's part of my answer to Justice Ginsburg as well. If I might, Your Honor, I notice that my five-minute light has come on. I'd like to move to the treaty question very briefly, which has not been yet addressed in this oral argument before the Court. Uh, we'd like to make about four points about the treaty very briefly, Your Honor. First of all, we'd like to focus on the characteristics of this treaty, which are extraordinarily unique in the history of the United States. The history, which we have recounted in some detail over about the first uh, 11 pages of our brief in chief, uh, is very unique with respect to the relations between the United States and the Choctaw Nation. That treaty, the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek, is, of course, the treaty to which the Chickasaw Nation uh, later becomes beneficiary by treaty in 1837. This treaty, and this has not been contested by the Tax Commission, involves broader guarantees of self-government than any guarantees that had ever been given in any treaty in the history of the United States. This is an uncontroverted fact. Uh, there has been no dispute of that issue by the Tax Commission. Uh, it is also how broad, how broad is the sweep of this treaty in your view? What about an Indian who, a tribal member who lives off the reservation and owns property off the reservation and ha is asked to pay a property tax? Uh, yes, Your Honor. We would not think that it would cover that situation. Uh, we think that the, that the significant interpretive aspects of this is, is that, first of all, it involves governmental relationships between tribes and their own members, and secondly, that it involves a nexus to tribal lands. Uh, and here the nexus to tribal lands is that the Indian country is the situs of the place where the governmental activities and the employment occurs. Uh, that, that would be our limiting, limiting feature, Justice O'Connor. Uh, in terms of interpretation... How do you get that out of the statute? I mean, I, I would think if you're interpreting the statute as broadly... As you ask us to, uh, the, the, the treaty, I'm sorry, on yes, the basis of just its language, I would think you, you, you'd have to say uh, that uh, a, a, a member of, of the tribe wouldn't have to obey general state laws. Your Honor, Is we the think... descendant of, of, of the tribe that were given these guarantees? We think that it's possible that, that, that other broader interpretations could be made. Uh, we, we, as well as the Tax Commission, as well as this Court, have, have thought of numerous hypotheticals which could go beyond. At this point, we confine our theory. We, we suspect that probably many of those theories would not be successful and should not be successful. Uh, but but uh, rather than attempting to litigate the possibilities, we have, we have simply advanced a very narrow theory before this Court. Mr. Arrow, but uh, yes, what sir? about the member of the tribe who lives in the town? That's the one we're talking about who can vote in the town as, as a resident, whose children can go to school there, who gets fire, police, or protection. Why should that person not have to pay tax? Yes. I understand the question, Justice Ginsburg. The answer is, this Court in Sac and Fox addressed at least part of that question as it had prior to that in McClanahan. Uh, in Sac and Fox, this Court indicated very clearly that, that treaty questions aside and other questions aside, and also the Williams versus Lee infringement question aside, uh, residence is a very significant component of the presumption of the per se rule in, in, under, under McClanahan, and, and, and we understand that. But the answer, Your Honor, is that there is simply no difference because Chickasaw tribal members, as all tribal members, are eligible for state 
services whether or not they re- reside in Indian country. So to the extent that the tax commission t- attempts to advance the, the proposition that somehow, somehow it is different for, for tribal members who live outside of Indian country, that they're somehow entitled to more state services than, than members who live in Indian country, this Court has already held in Sackin Fox and McClanahan that those who work and reside in Indian country are already exempt for state income taxation. And therefore, the distinction for this purpose, Your Honor, the distinction is simply a distinction without a difference from the standpoint of whether or not the employee of the government of the tribe lives within or without Indian country, because under either circumstance, they're going to be, uh, they're going to be uh, eligible for state services. And under those circumstances, there's no principled basis for a distinction uh, for purposes of applying the treaty, even the, uh, extending the treaty uh, to cover situations which this Court has not yet ruled on under general law in Sack and Fox. Thank you, Mr. Arrow. Uh, Thank Mr. Engelmeyer. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I would like to begin with the fuel tax issue. Our position is that the Court should resolve that issue by applying the principle that a State may not directly tax Indian activities in Indian country except where Congress has abrogated tribal immunity in explicitly, excuse me, in unmistakably clear terms. Applying that principle, Oklahoma may not impose its fuel tax on the Chickasaw Nation's retailers because Congress has not abrogated tribal immunity in this area and because, under state law, the Court of Appeals reasonably concluded that legal incidence falls on the retailer. Well, Mr. Engelmeyer, is your principle that uh, if Congress hasn't abrogated the immunity, uh, the state can't, is that consistent with our decisions in Moe and Colville and Shemawabe? Absolutely. Um, It is legal incidence that... Uh, determines whether or not an, uh, a, a showing of congressional uh, abrogation is required. And if the tax would why, why is it not required in the case of one kind of legal incidence, if, if your theory is correct? I believe it is correct. I mean, I, I don't believe there is any distinction. In other words, in Moe and Colville, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the, tax, the determinative factor where taxes fell on the purchaser was whether the purchaser was an Indian, in which case the tax would not, was, uh, could not be uh, imposed, or whether it was on non-Indian. Uh, so it was legal incidents there, as in Chemawavy, that was the decisive factor. And, and, the, and you say you, you trace that back to a congressional determination of what? I think the basis for the per se rule, which relies on legal incidents, uh, goes back uh, historically to the uh, sovereign immunity that uh, tribes have had under the, uh, vis-a-vis the states under the Constitution. It also, though, as the Court noted in County of Yakima just three years ago, has significant practical justifications. Uh, for example, one of them is that it serves the goal of predictability. It allows both states and tribes alike to rely categorically on the presence or absence of congressional authorization in determining whether a tax would or is uh, valid. It also obviates the need for an ongoing inquiry into whether the balance of interests that at one point may have justified a tax has changed over time. If, for example, it is shown that only a portion of a given tax maybe is being passed along. Um, as I noted, there is also a historical dimension to it in that it reflects the uh, sovereign immunity the tribes uh, have under the Constitution vis-a-vis the states. And finally, and perhaps this is most important, it leaves the states with considerable flexibility. In this case, all Oklahoma need do is to change the legal incidence uh, of the fuel tax to make sure that it falls on the ultimate purchaser. That is what other states with significant Indian populations have done. That's how they've administered their tax statutes consistent with principles of Indian sovereignty. I think this case is very much like citizen ban Potawatomi in that Oklahoma, having um, applied its tax laws in violation of settled principles announced by this Court of Indian sovereignty, has now come to this Court asking that those principles be scrapped. 
Rather, I think the proper solution is for Oklahoma to conform its tax practices to those principles. Now, I'd like to turn very briefly to the subject of Hayden Cartwright, recognizing that it is our view that the subject was not raised below or in the petition and therefore should not be reached. But should the Court reach the issue, our position is that the Act does not authorize direct state taxation of Indian tribes. That, we submit, is clear from this Court's decision in White Mountain Apache. There, the Court held that the Act does not authorize taxation of fuel use by a non-Indian company doing business for a tribe on its reservation, this despite the fact that the Hayden Cartwright Act explicitly authorizes taxation of fuel use. And the Court in that case reserved the question of whether the Act even applies on a reservation. Our submission is that if the Act did not authorize direct taxation of a non-Indian company doing business for a tribe on its reservation, it's awfully difficult to see how the Act could then be said to authorize direct state taxation. Moreover, applying the unmistakably clear standard from uh, Yakima and Blackfeet um, and Bryan, um, the tribe, neither the, the, the statute, the Hayden Cartwright Act, doesn't refer anywhere to tribes or Indians. There's no indication that at the time of the Act, 1936, Indians were even selling fuel on their reservations. And there's no evidence that Congress considered the distinct barrier to uh, uh, taxation posed by tribal immunity. What the Act does, I think, instead is to address and get rid of a distinct separate barrier posed by the uh, a territorial barrier posed by the federal status of certain land, for example, military reservations. On the subject of legal incidents, just very briefly, we believe it's principally a question of state law. There are sound bases for the Court of Appeals decision. In particular, as my co-counsel has noted, it appears that the statute uh, requires that the retailer pay the taxes to the distributor for remission to the state, and it protects distributors against non-paying retailers, but has no corresponding provisions governing the retailer to consumer step in the transaction. In addition, there's a useful contrast here between other Oklahoma laws, which quite explicitly put legal incidents on the consumer. Um, the cigarette tax law that was adverted to by the Court of Appeals, for example, and the special fuels tax law that Oklahoma has at Section 702 and 703 uh, of its code book, and it's cited, I believe, at pages 6 to 7 uh, in a general way, the special fuel tax section of my co-counsel's brief. That also applies explicitly to the consumer. I think some sort of a conclusion can be drawn based on the absence of such clear focus on either use or consum- consumption in this tax. Finally, with Do you know the answer to the question whether there's any consequence for federal um, tax purposes placing the incident on, on the retailer? I do not, Justice Ginsburg. Finally, uh, our, our position is that the Chickasaw Nation's treaty with the United States prohibits the state from taxing uh, wages paid by the Chickasaw Nation to its member employees. Now, it's certainly true, as Justice Scalia pointed out, that the treaty says absolutely nothing about income taxes or taxation of any kind. Nevertheless, I think one has to read the treaty, as this Court noted in Choctaw Nation, involving the very same treaty, from the vantage point of the Indian signatory in 1830, in the case of the Choctaw, 1837, in the case of the Chickasaw. Those I, would, I would think that it, it, what it meant to them at that time is that an, an Indian who, who was living in Indian country uh, was not subject to state regulation, taxes, or anything else, but that one who was living outside of Indian country would be subject to state regulation and, say, taxes. I think I mean, why do you draw the line just for purposes of taxes? How can you get that out of the statute? It seems to me if you, if you say that an Indian off of the reservation or out of Indian country uh, — can be ta- uh, cannot be taxed, it seems to me you would also say he cannot be regulated in any other fashion. If I may respond this way, 
I think from the vantage point of the Indian signatory in 1830, having no idea that someday this territory would be, this land would suddenly become part of the state known as Oklahoma or any state, having no conception of this idea even of uh, state income taxation, uh, such an Indian, if they were trying to express the thought that no state shall ever interfere with the relationship between a tribe and its members, if they were trying to figure out how to put that in a treaty, it's hard to think of a more emphatic way than the language which the treaty uses, which is, no territory or state shall ever have the right to pass laws for the government of the Chickasaw Nation or their descendants. Um, the treaty also provides that where any well-founded doubt appears regarding treaty terms, it should be construed in favor of the tribe. And while that's a, a, a tenet of statutory construction that this Court has used in many Indian treaty cases, this is a rare treaty that furthermore includes it itself. Justice Ginsburg inquired as to the limits of this theory. In our view, the limits of the theory involve simply laws that would interpose the state between the tribe and its members, in this case by actually removing part of the wages paid by a tribe to its members, and thus a property tax, for example, or a residency tax or a uh, gasoline tax imposed on off-reservation. Even though the members are long gone from the reservation? Well, they're not long gone in the sense that they're working, in this case, for the tribe and our tribal, their tribal employees. Well, how about a member that lives off the reservation and works off the reservation? For the tribe, Mr. Chief Justice, if it's not for the tribe... Not for the tribe. If it's not for the tribe, there's no tribal relationship with the members that's being disturbed. If well, that's, is, that's a nice line you're drawing. I mean, it may be a wonderful line, but I don't see how it has anything to do with the treaty language. But this... Government of the descendants of the Chicksaw... It seems to me you're governing the descendants of the Chicksaw Nation if you regulate their conduct whether with regard to charging them an income tax or with regard to preventing certain actions of theirs by reason of criminal law or anything else. If you want us to give this a liberal interpretation, it means that nobody will govern the descendants of the Chicksaw Nation. It's clear what that means. You don't govern them. I think if, if we were talking here about a treaty or a statute that had been enacted not having to deal with the Indian context, I would probably agree with you that uh, government probably would have something more to do with the process of government, governance, as you say. But I think from the vantage point of the Indians at the time, I think the understanding would be that, you know, at least insofar as the tribe is dealing with its members, nobody should be getting in between there. Once you stray off the reservation and you're not dealing with your tribe, criminal laws in a state, for example, I don't think that historically make that, that, that the logic would carry through as much. It's a good line. I just don't see it anywhere in the text of the. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Engelmeyer. Mr. Rothfeld, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. A, a couple of points. Let me start with the motor fuel tax and questions that were raised by the Chief Justice and Justice Stevens, whether or not the legal incidence actually makes any difference in the real world. I think the answer quite clearly is no. The only entity that has an legal, a legal obligation to do something here and against whom the State has any rights is the distributor, who neither of us suggest bears the legal incidence of the tax. So the question then is whether or not the State's failure to insert these magic words of legal incidence somewhere in the text of the tax, tax statute, words that would have no actual effect, should render the tax invalid. If there's no difference, well, how do you explain the reluctance of the, or the non-action by the Senate in killing this bill? Of the, of the, of the Oklahoma. State. I think that the, the State was of the view that it should get this issue resolved, that it should not be bound by a semantic rule to resolve its law around something which, it, which is meaningless. Um, and I think the Court — But since that would clarify it for the future, there wouldn't be any possible doubt. Why wouldn't they just go ahead and do it? Well, if, if the Tax Commission is correct in its contention here that that rule should not have legal effect, the legal incidence rule, then there's no need for the State to modify its rule in accordance with this. I think the reason they did it, Mr. Rothfeld, is they, they were worried that it would prejudice this litigation. By changing the rule, they would, in effect, be admitting 
that it wasn't already that way? Well, I think there may have been concern that it, w- it would moot the case. Um, so is the reason that they didn't pass it because they didn't want to moot the case? Well, I, I, I can't speak for all of the motivations of the you state legislature. You could speak legislature. for tax Well, it wouldn't moot the cases to pass tax obligations, would it? Well, past tax ag- ob- obligations are precluded, suited to re- collect those, are precluded by the tribe's sovereign immunity, which is one problem with this type of, this type of rule. Yeah, but is fact, it your view that, they, that the only reason, if it made no difference, it's hard to see why they didn't pass it? Unless they were worried that it might make the significance of this case less significant and maybe we would dismiss it. Well, I think they, they may well have been concerned. Given your that new it, argument. They may well have been concerned that it, that it would moot the case. Um, but I don't, I don't think they were concerned that it would reflect some weakness in, in the case. I think they Not thought a that, weakness, but. I, th- I think they thought that it was unnecessary to do it. I mean, but that, that's, if, if, if this is a tactical concern of one kind or another, which is what I'm curious about, I'm not saying it's best as a weakness in the case, I think that might be relevant if that is your view. Uh, I'm sorry, I may not be following the. Question. Well, there's a problem for us in this case in that there's a new issue brought that wasn't argued below, that isn't obvious how it comes out one way or the other, yet is determinative. And, and so that makes it a harder matter to reach the issue that this was granted cert to decide. And in the meantime, it's additionally confused because they could moot — or not moot it, but they could get rid of the problem by changing the law. And so that somehow feeds into this mix, too. Well, it, it will uh, always that's be the, I, That's why I asked the question. It, it will be, always be the case that where there's an argument about the meaning of, of legal incidents, that it's possible to avoid it by changing the state law. I mean, I think the, that has not been the Court's reaction in the past. In a case like Complete Auto, the, the state could have changed this law to delete the reference to privilege of doing business in interstate commerce, uh, which the Court's prior decisions had heard that felt uh, held determinative, and the Court said that wasn't necessary for the state to modify its law around the formalism. The proper course was to get rid of the formalism so that it wasn't determinative in the future. And clearly, as I was saying before, there is no real-world impact of determining the legal incidence falls on one party or the other. And therefore, the question is whether or not the law should be held invalid because the magic words were not used. The Court has rejected that rule in the past in virtually every other context. There is no reason to have it here unless But if you don't have the first day rule, supposing it's not a sale of consumers, supposing you went in the hotel business, they opened a hotel or a ski resort right on the reservation, uh, could the could Oklahoma tax the income and the property and everything else from that activity? I think probably not, and the reason is because the Court has said, looking to the economic reality, that the state can't tax value generated on the reservation by tribal enterprise. And that explains the outcome, I think, in cases like Colville and Moe, in which the Court said that the state could not tax sales by the tribe to tribal members of goods for use on the reservation. That was an entirely inter-tribal operation. And allowing the state to assert its interest there, where it really had no concern, no regulatory concern at all, and no responsibilities, would really threaten to displace the mechanisms of tribal government. That, that principle does not apply here because the customers are, in large part, non-members who are taking the goods subject to tax off the reservation. I'm not sure that I, I mean, maybe it's obvious, but why is it why, supposing the ski resort attracts skiers from all over the state, most of whom are not Indians, and don't they market their tax exemption if they don't have to pay any taxes? Well, I, I think that's true, Your Honor, but the lines that the Court has drawn in cases like Cabazon is whether or not there is value generated on the reservation by the tribe. And you, well, okay. Thank you, Mr. Rothbaum. The case is submitted.